Today on Sulphur Slugs Radio, we have a very interesting individual from the Triangle area. His name is Sean Stark, author of several self-defense books. He's a martial arts instructor and dedicated father of three, and a distiller by trade. Yeah, there's a lot of these distilleries popping up all over the place, huh? Yeah, there's a lot, man. I got a couple of friends doing it. Some good hooch coming out of there, too. Yeah, it's good to see a local product in North Carolina getting consumed. Yeah, I'm all for it. I'd like to see more of it in the stores. So let's get right into the interview. Sean, how did you get into distilling? Well, actually, I started um, my sort of career in graphic design uh, and photography. I used to do some photojournalism and stuff like that and uh, was a creative director, got kind of let loose during the whole downturn of 2012 was kind of when it hit my industry there in Central Florida. And... um, I won't speak too much about how I had skills in that, but uh, I had started um, brewing and um, messing around with that. And my wife's um, cousin actually owns New Holland Brewing, and they have a distilling program there. So I kind of contacted him and expressed interest, and they happened to be kind of looking for somebody to come in and assist because they were starting to grow. What were you guys making? Pretty much everything. Um, So I started off working uh, at the main production facility, and there they make, you know, gin, bourbon, malt, whiskey, the whole spiel. Um, And after about nine months, I think, I moved over to the pub system. It was a little bit smaller system, but they had a need for greater variety. They were kind of looking for more experimental batches and things like that because of the way the the way the um, permitting system is in Michigan. If you have wine and beer and spirits, you can't bring anything into a pub like liqueurs or anything. So I went over there and started um, experimenting with liqueurs and uh, learning how to make Campari-like things and, you know, whatever, Uh, vermouth, you name it. So um, on top of that, tons of, like, malt whiskey, wheat whiskey, bourbon, corn whiskey, you name it, Um, rum, gin, et cetera, all the way to absinthe, aquavit, you name it. So because I had free reign to kind of do it, it was a... It's like I'm gonna do it. Then I'm gonna try to figure it out. You know. What's the What's your favorite thing to to make like, that you're good at? What do you think's the best thing? Uh, I'm I really like rye whiskey and bourbon. Those two I like. Yeah, I hit those pretty good. Nice. Yeah. It takes It takes some years though, right? To to you have to age them, right? To age, yeah. It just depends on barrel size. So okay. that's all based on. Um, atmosphere really in a way because temperature variations, all that kind of stuff, um, atmospheric pressure, you know, all the, you name it. If it if it's something that affects you and I, it affects a barrel. And uh, so I spent um, time even messing around with barrel sizes and like speeding up the aging process by putting them in a cooler, taking them out of a cooler for a week at a time, uh, yeah. all kinds of stuff. So yeah, there's ways to do it. Um, and uh, but you can get like out of a five gallon barrel, it's roughly going to take about uh, five six months. But out of a fifty three, which is a full size normal barrel, it could take two to three years, four years. Yeah, just depends. When you're starting a new place, everybody wants to make gin and they want to make vodka. And the reason they want to do that is because they don't have to age it. 
Right. We can sell it right away and make a profit and, well, not really a profit, but make money to start paying the bills. The problem with vodka is that it's actually the hardest product to make. Because it has to be pure, right? It has to, you yeah. have to distill yeah. it a bunch of so, times, right? Well, it depends on the system. But yeah, so you literally have, uh, it has to be 190 proof. 200 proof is 100% pure alcohol. You can't actually make anything higher than 196 proof um, because it'll azeotrope. So it'll start sucking water out of the air. Um, and so you only have it like that little teeny window that you have to get within. Um, and that is fairly difficult to do. But like if you consider like beer, right? I like to use this analogy. It's not 100%, but it kind of gives the idea. One of the hardest things in the world to do is to make like Coors Light. Right. Why is that? Because it has like very little flavor. It has to be 100% consistent. You generally need a lot of volume. The margins are really low. You've got to sell it for as cheap as possible. Yeah. And as a distiller that's on a small system trying to do this consistently, it's really freaking hard. Right. It's really hard to make vodka. And it's really hard to make it at a, a price point that's going to hit a normal market. I mean, you're talking about a price point that's like, What's the cheapest bottle? Ten bucks, yeah. and it goes up to, you, you know, yeah. most people are like sixteen, seventeen bucks a bottle, eighteen bucks. Yeah. You're not gonna, not everybody buys Tito's, right? So you're competing in this marketplace that's just tiny, yeah. and it's saturated, right? right? Like, right. <laughs> it's it's a hell of a thing to get, try to do well, um, in my opinion. And and if you think about uh, beer, so beer like. My target when I make a whiskey or whatever is to make a 10% beer. Okay, that's it's considered beer. And then you ferment it. And so 500 gallons, I should theoretically have 50 gallons of alcohol. The problem is it's not all drinkable in concentrated form because you have methanol, ethyl acetate, uh, ethanol, which is what we want to drink, but then you have isopropanol, polypropanol, butanol, all the other alcohols that you drink every day in a beer and wine mm -hmm. don't work out so well in a spirit. And so you're really only yielding about 5% of product out of that 500 you know, gallons wow. or whatever. So That's crazy. Yeah, it's a very small amount. Huh. Um, yeah, it's, people think like, oh, you made beer. You're like, hey, because you're used to like, you know, if I make 500 gallons of beer, you drink 500 gallons of beer. Yeah. But you, you're... You know, 25 gallons of booze. So what do you think the the future is for distilling? You, you think that you were going to keep seeing distillers pop up all the time, or you think there'll be less? Well, I think this new law change in North Carolina, um, the SB290 laws, are going to really... I think you're going to see a surge of them. There's like three models right now. Um, there's the large guys. Um, and I, I don't mean like Jack Daniels, but like the guys who are fairly small in the scheme of things, but they're huge by our standards, right? Uh, there's one in Statesville that's pretty large. And all that they do is they source. They do source stuff. So somebody comes and says, contract work. And they're like, ah, we want our own whiskey or whatever. Uh -huh. Those ones are succeeding um, because volume is really the key to success. And then the other ones that are succeeding are the really tiny ones because you're selling it usually at a bar level. Uh -huh. 
Like you have your little storefront with your uh-huh. stuff and your drinks and your cocktails. And so I think with the new law changes, we might see a lot more bars start to do it. I'm not 100% sure, of course, but it's certainly doable because they can start. Now we can make cocktails and we can do all kinds of things that we weren't able to do a year ago. Is that legal now? The bar could distill? Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. I mean, they still have to get their own distilling license, well, yeah. but it's really the other way around. They become a distillery, and as a distillery, they're able to uh, make cocktails and sell beer and wine and stuff, right. so, as I understand the law anyway. We got Rafe in here today snapping pictures, so if you can hear it's the, the camera shutter. Go- yeah, we have paparazzi here wherever we go, sulfur slugs. Um, but anyway, to get back to the um, self-defense stuff... You wrote some books before you started this series. Uh, what, were, what were they on? They, they were all martial arts books, right? Yeah, yeah. I've got like four on um, Penchok Sila, which is just really, you know, it's kind of a labor of love for me. But um, I, I'm a, when I first started in Penchok Sila, you, could, you really couldn't find it in the U.S. very easily. Um, it's still not as accessible as a bunch of martial I'd arts. I've never I heard of it until I yeah, met you. Yeah, so um, it's still pretty obscure. Most martial artists don't even really know what it is. And so uh, for me, it was kind of like, you know, I wanted to give back and sort of like spread the word. Because um, for me, it's been a really uh, transcendent process. You know, like there's been so much personal value out of it um, that... I just wanted to give other people the opportunity to do that. So it's from the Philippines. <clears throat> this right one, uh, so they have it, Southern Philippines has Panchaksi lot, but all the way up through Borneo, Malaysia, Indonesia, and the military trains them in that. Is that or is, um, is that just like an ancient? Well, they're trained like military can be trained, yeah. In but that's Panchak an ancient Silat. martial art, right? Yeah, it's been around forever. There's like thousands of systems because they they. Literally, like uh, a family might have their own version. Ah. Um, so, and then there's tribe uh, style versions, you know, where it's from their village or whatever. What makes so, it different from kung fu or karate? Uh, so, really, the emphasis I think on knife is probably the biggest thing. Yeah, because it's weapons so, based. Yeah, it's yeah. it's hundred um, percent that. The, you know, absolutes are tough, right? Because yeah. there's so many variations. They have everything from like systems that fight almost exclusively on the ground to more that look like wrestling to, you know, you name it really, literally, huh. whatever you want to imagine probably exists. Huh. And, um, but it, there is always an emphasis on some sort of weapons training. Um, it's you. very energetic a lot of times. Uh, there's a lot of um, cultural ties to it. So, there's this aspect to it called Kembangan, and Kembangan is like uh, almost like martial dance. Okay. It's like you kind of like freestyle it, right? It's like a kung fu form, kind of. Like- yeah, except it's completely freestyle. You can do oh, whatever you want, okay. um, but it's done to music. Oh, um, I see. And so, uh, and what's different about the music aspect is that the, actually the musicians play play to match you. <laughs> So you do your thing, and let's say you're doing a killing blow or something, you know, and they will have a gong that goes off every time you do some sort of interpreted killing blow. So there's like this 
odd little, you know, pseudo delay between. Right. Yeah, it's just it's really an interesting thing. So that's an aspect. <laughs> that's um, crazy. The uh, when you get into like uh, the Menang, the Menang of Sumatra, which is um, a matriarch set up, um, the guys all get kicked out to the other building and they go and do sea lot. Uh-huh. You know, so it's, that's how they kind of separate. You know. Yeah. So there's a lot of um, uh, that sort of like cultural unity that's developed. A lot of women train in that. Uh, it, more so than ever in the past. Um, you know, it's a, it largely Islamic culture, so kind of yes and no. I see. You know, it really depends. There are there is a direct tie to a lot of spiritual um, sides. So <sighs> Indonesia is completely syncretic. I mean, there's like Catholicism and Indian, like Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam. Um, so it's like, it's pretty syncretic. You get like arts that focus on that aspect. So just really, I'm, yeah. I'm not joking when I say there's thousands. It's Do you travel over there a lot? I don't. Uh, I've been over there one time. I was there for about three weeks, I think. Uh, between Papua, um, Kuala Lumpur, Papua, not Papua New Guinea, but Papua, right. and then back over to Java and Jakarta. Hmm. So, Bandung is actually where I did the majority of my training. What's yeah. the What's the best uh, piece of advice you'd give to somebody with with no self defense training? If they're listening to this right now, um, always fight back. Even if you if you never do anything, always fight back. There's right. never a case, um, I never, I, I hate absolutes, which is an absolute. I always find that ironic, but anyway. <laughs> um, but uh, statistically speaking, there's not, not I think 96% of the time, a victim who fights back will stop the crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and 96. Yeah, it's really high. Wow. Yeah, So so when you're talking about Having a choice between studying martial arts or, or studying um, something, you know, none of those prepare you necessarily. So I've been scanning through it, and I'd like to know more. Tell me a little bit about this book, A Guerrilla Guide to Self-Defense. Yeah, um, a book, uh, the basic book is A Guerrilla Guide to Self-Defense, and then the second book is A Guerrilla Guide to Avoiding Sexual Violence. So tell me, how did you uh, get started in martial arts? Uh, you know, I grew up around black belt TV on Saturdays and all that stuff, uh, Kung Fu theater and Bruce Lee and all that stuff. So, um, I just kind of, uh, was always fascinated by it, was intrigued by, um, the lifestyle and, uh, all of the things it purports to do for a person. So... What, what school did you train in originally? Was it karate that you started in or? Um, well, I've done... I've done a bunch, actually. I've done Kung Fu and uh, some Tai Chi and Judo and Aikido and uh, and then kind of migrated through that to um, JKD, which is Jeet Kune Do, which is Bruce Lee's uh, style. And then through that process, got I- introduced to Filipino martial arts and Indonesian martial arts. And that's the Silat? Penchok Silat. What is that all about, exactly? Well, the basis of... Both Filipino and Indonesian martial arts are essentially their their weapons based arts. Uh, so 
um, you'll see a lot more of an emphasis on how to how to use and how to deal with weapons uh, from a you know self protection perspective. You um, recommend for like your students to do the self defense courses to carry a weapon of some sort. Um, it depends. Um, I'm really an advocate for understanding your laws uh, regionally and locally. Um, I think that for for women, it is definitely an advantage to um, understand improvised weapons at the very least. Um, you know, picking up a cell phone, probably one of the best uses for a cell phone out in public is to use it as a brick. So uh, that's kind of my perspective on, on weapons because it's a lot easier to explain that to police than you know, shooting somebody or using a knife or whatever, you know, so. Yeah, I was reading in your book, um, one of the scenarios, a woman was, uh, she was a, a nearly abducted when she was jogging and she actually had a gun on her, but it was of no use to her. She, she couldn't yeah. use it. Yeah, she, um, well, what a lot of people don't realize about self-protection situations is that people will often carry a weapon, but it's kind of a placebo, right? Like, they think that just because they're carrying it, it's going to kind of protect them. And it, and it gives them a sense of confidence and security. But when it really comes down to it, they haven't worked through what it means to actually use it. Um, and uh, so they have that sort of hesitation uh, that can really put them at risk. A lot of times, if you're not really intent on doing that kind of harm to somebody, the weapon can be used against you. So she felt in that situation particularly that she didn't feel comfortable pulling it out because proximity was too close and she felt like it would be used against her. I understand you have daughters, so is that how you got into the self-defense thing? I know it would help me get there. Well, so I actually have three, uh, two older and one that's still in high school. And um, uh, it's kind of an interesting, longer story because I, I've always been resistant to self-defense classes because the notion is that you take this class and suddenly you're able to defend yourself. Um, and most people who take them only take it once or maybe twice in their life. And, you know, even if you're doing uh, well, really any task, um, you get the value you put into it. So, so there's this sort of false sense of security that's developed. Um, <clears throat> and my, uh, so I've always been resistant uh, to that idea because I don't want, I personally um, am not comfortable with leading people to believe that they're going to be able to protect themselves uh, off of a Saturday afternoon. Right. Um, but I was approached by a, kind of a friend of a friend, the six degrees of separation thing, and um, he uh, was trying to find martial arts instructors that would travel to Ecuador to Quito um, and work with uh, trafficking victims there in Quito, street kids, basically. And uh, was turned down by like 200 different instructors or something. And um, myself and actually ultimately another couple of guys decided to go down there and work uh, to develop this program. So this program basically was developed in Quito and then brought back to the U.S. because as I started sort of studying the problem and the scope of the issues, I felt like uh, the U.S. is actually one of the worst places for trafficking. Um, and so uh, we always think of it being in Thailand and, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. But um, there's, a, there's nothing about the U.S. that takes us off of that list. Uh, we're usually the biggest buyers of it and, and supporters of trafficking. And so... 
um, I felt like it was a perfect opportunity to kind of bring something back that could work more on the education side. Um, and so, you know, to me, the, the real deal for us is as citizens is to work more on the prevention side than on the rescue side. Um, so if we can, you know, spend, um, 20 minutes learning how to, uh, take time to recognize what's happening, um, how we're being manipulated, whatever, we can save all the rest of that crap right. that comes along. So right. um, it's financially more responsible, the whole deal. So I know you've done a lot of research on uh, pedophiles. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, yeah. It's some crazy <clears throat> statistics you're throwing at me. Yeah, I don't have them all memorized because they, uh, they're a little bit disturbing. But uh, some uh, the there was a study done... Uh, in the book that I'm reading, that uh, is basically a blind study all the, the out of the criminal justice system. They're all prisoners, and um, they were essentially assured that they could not be prosecuted for being honest. So it's like this double blind, triple blind kind of thing. And uh, out of I think it's 561 prisoners that they men that they interviewed, and this is like uh, interviewed with polygraph, all the whole deal. Um, they had admitted to 291,000 different types of offenses. Wow. So it's That's pretty mind boggling. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty mind boggling. And, um, uh, of those, uh, there was like, uh, 33,000, uh, potential victims, I think it was. Jeez. So, um, the numbers are, insane you know we talk about like you know a lot of places that deal with kids they do background checks but if you just think about that whole thing for a minute if you can get away with it 200 300 times yeah before you're even caught then really the background checks total bullshit yeah what kind of self-defense techniques do you recommend for children Young kids. Uh, so this is the tough thing, right? Because, because most of this occurs in the home, actually, about 55%, uh, depending on, you know, if it's a man or woman or whatever. Most sexual violence in particular and trafficking actually occurs usually in the home. It starts there and it's roughly a 50% statistic. And then it's friends of family and then acquaintances. So like stranger dangers, kind of, it's not really a thing. Right. It's... 7% maybe of the total. Um, huh. So, uh, you know, when you're talking about children, you're talking about trying to teach them to have the willingness to elbow Uncle Joe in the throat. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, right. so it's, it's not really going to happen. I right. mean, we want to think it would happen and all that. So I'm, I'm actually in the process of writing a third book right now that's just really all about boundary setting. Right. And, you know, it's kind of giving them a voice, actually. I, I was just in Casper, uh, Wyoming this past weekend teaching, and we had kids in there from 10 up to, well, adults, you know. Um, it's about 25 people, I think. And, uh, you know, they're never going to fight me off. A 10-year-old girl is not going to fight off a dude. Right. It's just not going to happen. It's total crap if anybody tells you. The best she could do is, like, rip your ear off or something like that, which is horrible, and they should do it. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, again, you're talking about Uncle Joe or Grandpa or, you know, stepdad or whatever. Right. So are they going to do that? Probably not. 
but um, getting them to like repeatedly speak up. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the exercises we did, for example, was to uh, go around the room and everybody has to say like, I'm worth fighting for. Mm. And if they divert their eyes or they look away while they say it, or they don't say it with kind of some sort of ownership, I'll just make them keep saying it until they right. kind of own it, you know? Uh-huh. And it's really, it's it's one of the more powerful things you can do is to get someone to understand that they they can fight back, they should fight back, that there's no reason they shouldn't have boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, so teaching kids about that kind of stuff is probably the bigger issue and how to communicate about uh, touch and all, you know all the normal stuff that right. we kind of hear about, but doing it in a way that is really approachable because uh, the vast majority of the times um, parents don't believe the kids. That's the other dilemma. Yeah, crazy. Um, yeah I, I mean, there's a, this, there's a story in this book, that the Predators book that I'm reading, and it was about a high school music teacher. Had a hundred kids that he admitted to sexually assaulting. Uh, one kid spoke up, and for that one kid, he was in prison. But there were several kids that came up afterwards and said, yeah, no, that happened. Mm-hmm. And their parents actually still to this day write this guy in prison because they don't believe their kids. Wow. Yeah, so disturbing. That's crazy. Yeah, so, I mean, to me, I feel like the education has to take place on both ends, right, of the yeah. spectrum because we we live day to day with this understanding that we're we're everybody's nice, right? Like um, what I try to teach people is that people act nice, they act charming, but it's an act, right? It's not who a person is. It's just what we do to transact through life. Um, you know, you're walking down the street, somebody doesn't attack you. Are they nice? Well, I mean, essentially they didn't harm you, right? So we could say they're nice, right? There's, yeah. you know, so kind of defining all of that stuff gets really, um, I think important, you know, the boy who sits next to a girl in class who um, brings her a soda every day, but they never have any trust interactions. She's, she and he probably still refer to each other as friends, mm-hmm. but really friendship is about trust interactions, right? Right. So it's like, you know, there's just a lot of education that I think is assumed that we fumble through. Yeah. And we're lucky 99% of the time. Yeah. And you don't want to be like one of the uh, super paranoid no, all yeah. the time. You know? So this is, uh, that's another thing that I talk about quite frequently is I feel like, you know, it's really easy to go like there's a boogeyman behind every corner, but that's not really the case. And, and once you start to teach people about boundary setting and, and situational awareness, environmental awareness, all those things, uh, you're really empowering people to have freedom. Like, I'm not telling people don't go running in the dark. I'm just saying, don't be stupid about it. Like, know what's happening. Pay attention to what's going on. Take the earbuds out. Put your phone away. Yeah. It's like situational awareness and all Mm -hmm. that. You go over that in the books. Yeah. 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 So as far as like the martial arts you teach for, um, you call it guerrilla self-defense. Is that when you say guerrilla, is that because the military uses it over there? so that's kind of where it started from, um, and the the reality is that what why we chose to use that term is because it gives you um, kind of a bigger picture about what we're trying to do. We're really trying to build people within their communities 
who can reach their own communities with this thing. And so uh, the notion isn't that you have to, um, you know, have somehow some special training. You don't have to be a special forces, for example. You can just go out right now and go help somebody, right? You don't, it doesn't have to be all that. Like, right. so it's really, guerrilla is really about that sense of community and getting shit done regardless mm -hmm. um, and uh, not re being reliant on a bunch of process. Right. So. So we were talking earlier about the statistics for women in attending college uh, being assaulted. So what is it like, 23, 25%? Yeah, it kind of depends on who's who's talking. Sometimes, you know, the numbers shift a little bit, but yeah, generally between 19 and 24, first two years of school, they're at about 20% chance, 25 uh, ch for sexual assault. And even actually going through school, a regular uh, primary school, um, you're at about a 10% chance. Wow. So it's pretty high um, consistently, but it, it does go up about four times more likely in college age. Do you um, think that's just because of the age? <clears throat> um, I think and, uh, uh, the vast majority of it is about the first time a person's away from home and they're exploring a bunch of different things and they set themselves up without knowingly doing so. Right. Um, there's a lot of opportunistic sexual assault that occurs in college. Um, you know, there's sort of categories of it and um, an opportunity, opportunistic sort of sexual assault would be like the girl's drunk. So I take her home and then I sexually assault her. But I wouldn't have had the intent. I wasn't hunting, right. you know, like a real predator sort of. Uh, so it's just circumstantial kind of thing. It doesn't make it any better. But right. um, and so it's. It's not having a good sense of how to control circumstance and situations mm -hmm. so that, you know, they, they should buddy. You know, if you're going to go to a frat party, buddy up. Make sure you don't leave anybody behind, you know. Right. Um, stuff like that would make a huge difference. So Yeah. That's, you know, a lot of it seems just like common sense, but you'd be surprised how yeah, people well, don't even think of it. I mean, common sense, right? It's common sense until you're a little buzzed, mm -hmm. you know, and then it's less common. Right. <laughs> or less sense, maybe. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a, that's a big thing, though, is uh, uh, particularly in college, it's uh, women who you know, they're really learning to drink for the first time, uh, maybe exp um, explore other drugs, you know, so there's a lot of that kind of right. dynamic involved. Um, first time they maybe have found a guy that really likes them, you know, whatever. All yeah. the all the sort of dramatic yeah. stuff that um it's scary people do to themselves. Oh, it's, it's yeah, it's crazy. So scary. Yeah, it's crazy. Actually, and a statistic most people don't know is that um men boys who go to college are seven times more likely to be sexually assaulted. Wow. Yeah, right? Like I had no idea That's that was crazy. a thing. Yeah. So you're working on a new book right now, right? Yeah, yeah. The third book in the series is just strictly about um, boundary setting and skills of that kind, you know, that you can do without having to be really involved in a whole lot of other aspects, but um, that, you know, they have benefit elsewhere. You know, if you learn how to boundary set well, then you know how to deal with your bosses, you know, you know how to deal with your relationships, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a little bit bigger picture, but I'm doing it um, specifically still for the self-protection. 
it's going to still be under the self-protection, yeah. the same yeah. series. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, um, about your books, do you have any, uh, can you give some information on how people can order your books or where they can find them? And Yeah, they're actually all on Amazon um, and you can, you can get paperback or you can do the Kindle thing. Uh, they're both available that way. Nice. Um, actually, all the martial arts ones are on there as well, so. And you're pretty active on social media. I see you putting stuff up on yeah. the, the pre, Yeah, Instagram, uh, the Gorilla Guru, and then um, on Facebook we have a Gorilla Self-Protection page. Well, Sean, thank you for coming in. It was a pleasure. Yeah, my you. pleasure. Um, it's been my pleasure, too. Yeah. <laughs> the leg. You have a problem with that. Everybody was Soft for Slugs magazine is contemporary literature for the random reader, covering everything from local art to music, politics, film, you name it. Soft for Slugs radio is produced at Stony Hill Sound Studio in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. The name Soft for Slugs is a metaphor not to be taken literally. No slugs were harmed in the production of this podcast. Thank you for listening.